0: So good morning, it's really a pleasure to be here today and uh, kick off this uh, great CME session. Uh, This session is supported by educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, ASAI and Merck and it really talks about the impacting the HCC outcomes using multimodal multimodal therapy and the importance of interdisciplinary management team It's a pleasure to be here moderating with uh, Dr. Gandhi. We have three great speakers. These are our learning objectives. They're there in front of you to to read, basically looking at uh, challenges to optimal screening, diagnostic and staging procedures, and how the team helps with that in the treatment of HCC. Current guideline recommendations concerning resection, transplant, and use of local, regional, and systemic therapies in uh, patients with HCC pharmacological properties of novel and emerging systemic therapies for HCC, mechanism of actions, efficacy, safety data, and indications, and then you apply the strategies for multidisciplinary care that incorporate a spectrum of treatment modalities for real-world treatment plans in patients with HCC. So with that, uh, I'd like to welcome our first speaker, Ed Kim. Ed, uh, Edward Dr. Kim is a good friend He's a director of interventional oncology at Mount Sinai in New York, uh, going to discuss HCC management. Welcome, Ed.
1: Thanks, Tino, and thank you for the uh, invitation to come in and speak. Uh, okay, I'll just get started on, uh, and speak a little bit. I've been asked to speak on HCC management. Uh, it, as we all know, it, the incidence of HCC is actually rising, uh, despite all the antiretrovirals that have come out. Uh, if you look at the estimated new cases back in 2017, it's, it's uh, over 40,000, and the estimated deaths is close to 30,000. Uh, historically, 20% of HCC is resectable, and contraindications that Gennaro will go over uh, later on in terms of surgery Uh, include things such as significant portal hypertension, elevated total bilirubin, uh, and low platelets. When we look at the primary risk factors for HCC, the ones that really stand out are hep B and hep C. Hep C has been uh, under control with the antiretrovirals, uh, and hep B's incidence is decreasing with uh, preemptive measures, mostly in, let's say, Middle East and Asia. Uh, But there is a rising incidence of NASH within the United States, and also alcoholic liver disease, as well as other causes. And these cause a chronic hepatitis, leading to cirrhosis uh, and then development of HCC. When we try and understand survival outcomes, it's really understood within the framework of the BCLC. And I say it's, you know, there are criticisms and people say that it's not perfect, but it is a common language between multiple disciplines to really discuss how to manage uh, HCC and where relevant uh, therapies go. And I think that's the key here and that we'll learn throughout this symposia is that a multidisciplinary approach uh, to the treatment of HCC is really standard of care and uh, mandatory. So going through this early stage, we have curative therapies and these include transplantation, uh, resection, as well as ablation. Uh, And with the intermediate stage, it's uh, with a high level of evidence, chemoembolization has been firmly entrenched here. And in the last two years in the advanced stage, there has been really an explosion of systemic therapies uh, that have come out Uh, for 10 years. It's really been seraphim, and Richard is really going to expound on that. And then uh, there are uh, just radioembolization that can be used throughout the BCLC stage, not as high level of evidence in terms of level one as uh, the others, but uh, certainly in practice, uh, especially at Mount Sinai. So, I talked about this uh, multidisciplinary HCC team. Uh, you can see there are a lot of players here. We meet every Thursday morning with about thirty physicians in the room going over anywhere from thirty to forty cases. Uh, and uh, the players usually are you know uh, medical oncology, interventional radiology, surgery, hepatology, uh, as well as uh, the burgeoning field of SBRT in liver cancer management with radiation oncology. So the ASLD guidelines. Uh, talk about a a bunch of things, and it seems like things are changing uh, on an annual basis, and it's quite confusing. And so that's where we really uh, lean on our transplant team to help us guide us through all the guidelines that are really in a state of flux, along with uh, UNOS's changing guidelines. Where we really come in for interventional radiology is really as a bridging therapy waiting for transplantation uh, to really look at the tumor biology. That's what we're doing. We're trying to weed out all the aggressive tumors uh, and that's why there's a six-month minimum wa- uh, mandatory wait list that was uh, introduced back in 2015. Uh, there is evidence that ASLD supports in, the, in roles of downstaging. If we know the data on the Milan criteria, we know that those within Milan uh, that Matsafaro published in the New England Journal of Medicine show that uh, those within Milan do extremely well Just because you're outside of Milan, though, the argument can be made that it doesn't mean that you also do not do well. It's just a much lower percentage of patients that do well. So downstaging is supported and recommended. Uh, Local regional therapy over no treatment is also recommended in T2 and T3 staging. Uh, And so this is uh, for patients who are not candidates for resection or transplantation. However, the uh, specific local regional therapy is not uh, expounded upon, but... Uh, uh, merely recommend that local regional therapies be performed. And systemic therapy is endorsed for child A P-A patients or child B with vascular invasion. In terms of UNOS point allocation, I alluded to the fact that in 2015, October specifically, uh, there was a, a modified criteria that was uh, established for those who are eligible for transplantation. And they have to meet uh, T2 criteria, or MILAN, again, because of uh, the, the article that was published by Matsafero's group showing that how well patients do who are within MILAN criteria. However, there's a mandatory six-month waiting period. And so during that six months, uh, you're really observing the tumor biology. Is this going to get uh, become very aggressive, where a transplantation would provide no benefit? Or uh, is this something that will uh, really... Uh, provide benefit for the patient, and so most places will do some form of local regional therapy uh, in these patient populations with imaging assessment at every three months. And so every three months you gain uh, MELD exception points uh, with T2 priority patients starting at a higher uh, MELD uh, exception point with a cap of 34. So basically you're, it's, it's a point system where you uh, jump the list, those with the highest MELD points Will get priority over others with uh, lower melt points, uh, and then tumor patients kind of jump the line a little bit according to this uh, uh, criteria, but they get uh, capped out at, at at 34. So there was a modification again made in uh, December of 2017, specifically regarding alpha-fetoprotein, which is a marker uh, tumor marker for HCC. And those above 1,000 are ineligible for transplantation because it's an indicator that you may have an aggressive tumor biology going on within the liver. However, if you can drop that AFP to less than 500 uh, after an initial 1,000 with local regional therapy, then you get standard exception points. Then a letter can be written on your behalf to say, uh, this patient has now a tumor that is relatively under control. We should give them a shot at transplant, which is a true cure. Uh, And then candidates over T2 who have been downstaged are also eligible for standard exception points. So moving on in terms of specific staging, BCLC A. these are patients that are really within uh, Milan criteria for the most part. Three nodules, uh, each less than three centimeters, or a single single tumor. Uh, That single tumor in the BCLC staging can be, in A, can be any size because surgical resection can be performed, which is a curative uh, treatment. They have to have absence of macrovascular invasion or extra-hepatic spread, and these are, are uh, eligible by those curative therapies I discussed. Now, these are all the different regions uh, for UNOS. Now, keep in mind, I know there are a lot of people from all over the country at this meeting, uh, that a region nine is quite different from region three in terms of uh, transplant waiting list period. At region three, we were just discussing most uh, transplant waste uh, individuals will really get transplanted probably around that minimum six-month waiting period. And so maybe you do something like a TACE instead of uh, a Y90 uh, because potentially the shorter time to progression to bridge these patients. Whereas in Region 9 uh, in New York, we wait usually about two years uh, before patients can be transplanted, and that's the same with Region 5. And so... uh, you have different strategies and plans, and different patient population, uh, depending on different regions. And uh, that's not to even mention the fact that there were changes uh, accounting for the regions with, you know, uh, uh, radiuses upon which uh, organs would be drawn from, which is implemented and then has gone to, to court, and it was halted. So we're back to the 2017 recommendations. Uh, In terms of ablation, we know that from published literature, from Levrahi, uh, as well as uh, Lee, that when you ablate lesions less than 2 centimeters in size, it's really uh, equivalent to resection And literature from multiple sources have shown that. We also know that there are thermal ablation pitfalls, uh, either size, the larger it gets, heat sinks and location against uh, various uh, critical structures such as the heart, the lung, as well as bowel, can lead to serious adverse events. And so not all all patients are thermoablation patients. And so they undergo what was described by Burrell et al. out of the Barcelona group, and she described uh, treatment migration, where you have a local regional therapy that's really indicated for, let's say, the intermediate stage, such as chemoembolization in her paper, or radioembolization. It migrates down to an uh, earlier stage because... Uh, a patient may be ineligible, for instance, with uh, portal hypertension for resection. They are not a transplant candidate. And the location is unfavorable uh, due to increased SAEs for ablation. And that's where we get this treatment migration, either with radiation segmentectomy or chemobilization. Briefly discuss radiation segmentectomy because we uh, perform a lot of it at Mount Sinai. And we published uh, in peer-reviewed journals where you inject in a Q-Node segment uh, and then uh, that uh, infusion really simulates an anatomic resection. And Riaz and Vouche really described this phenomenon first uh, with a curative intent. And we published in JVIR that our results uh, showed that uh, radioembolization in, in terms compared to chemoembolization showed a time to what we could describe as secondary therapy when there's not an, uh, uh, a complete response on modified resist, and you have to retreat the patient. That radioembolization had a time to secondary therapy of 812 days, as opposed to chemoembolization with 161 days. We also did a head-to-head that was published in Radiology that showed that there was no statistically significant difference in complete response rate, overall survival uh, in, between ablation versus uh, radioembolization in lesions three centimeters and less. And then Bob Lewandowski also published their experience at Northwestern, showing excellent. Uh, response in lesions 5 cm and less and this is just a quick case first case that we did radiation segmentectomy pre you see a two centimeter lesion next to the ivc and he is now uh eight years out uh with a complete response i'm not going to go too much into this but this is where the multidisciplinary aspect comes into play uh, when we talk about resection in cirrhotics, how much is enough residual uh liver volume and so uh In general, you want to avoid resection in cirrhotics. So how can we increase the hepatic reserve? Uh, There has been described sequential chemoembolization plus PVE. Uh, Just PVE has really been shown to be only a benefit in metastatic disease and not really in in cirrhotic patients with HCC uh, because of the theoretical risk of hyperarterialization of flow to the tumor uh, and progression. And so we use radioembolization in a low bar um, uh, distribution called radiation lobectomy, and it's really threefold that we do that. It's, it's as a neoadjuvant therapy for uh, the tumor. It's to induce contralateral hypertrophy, and then there's a three-month period that we wait, and we're really assessing the tumor biology at that time with, uh, while treating the tumor and inducing contralateral lobe hypertrophy. When we go to the intermediate stage, we're really talking about multinodular patient, uh, uh, either unilobar or bifocal, bilobar disease. Very good performance status, you uh, A to B, and there's no extrapatic spread or vascular invasion. In this patient population, chemoembolization really has been shown to provide a median overall survival benefit anywhere from 19 to 26 uh, months uh, with 40 to 50% at three years. And multiple um, uh, uh, studies have come out, uh, really low and low vet back in 2002, showed that benefit versus best supportive care. Radioembolization, Riyad Salem, uh, challenges chemoembolization. He did a study looking at uh, overall survival, and what he found was that the toxicity profile was significantly less in radioembolization versus chemoembolization, although he did not find that there was an overall survival benefit uh, on one versus the other. There was also a provided longer time-to-progression benefit, uh, radioembolization providing almost five months more than chemoembolization. Uh, And so that could be the impetus uh, for uh, Bob Lewandowski's study, looking at uh, radioembolization versus chemoembolization in downstaging T3 to T2 patients, which showed a statistically significant benefit in the uh, size as well as the time to downstaging patients. Moving on to the advanced stage, we know that there has just been an explosion of systemic therapies, and I'm not going to steal Richard's thunder when he talks about all the therapies here, but this is just to put things into perspective in terms of how much has come out since serafinib. But when we look at a key demographic within the advanced stage, which is heterogeneous in its population, the specific population of patients who have macrovascular invasion have a uh, more dismal prognosis, anywhere from 2.7 to 4 months. And a macroembolic such as chemoembolization is relatively contraindicated in this population because if you cut off the portal flow as well as the arterial flow, uh, you're going to cause liver decompensation. So radioembolization, which is a minimally or, or, or less symbolic therapy which relies on radiation, uh, was published by Laura Kulick in a joint study with Northwestern and uh, University of Pittsburgh. And they showed that approaching the nine-month mark, partial PVT as well as no PVT showed uh, the exact same survival curve at which point they diverged. This was also published around the same time by the... Um, uh, a group from Essen, Germany, that also showed a similar survival uh, with a median time to progression of 10 months and an OS of 17 months in this patient population. And then multiple studies have come out by Guerin, Matsuferro, as well as our group uh, that showed a median OS that is similar across all the studies that have been published, published about about 10 months, and that it's, uh, you get even higher survival rates when you increase the dose and target the PVT. Sarah and Servaniv. Uh, studies that have come out, phase three studies, show that there was no overall survival benefit or and progression free survival between uh, radioembolization versus serafinib. However, keep in mind that when you dissect the study, that 27 and 29 percent did not receive Y90, and over half the uh, about half the patients received chemoembolization beforehand, which limits the efficacy of radioembolization. Uh, also, there's a, there was a heterogeneous uh, patient population, including BCLC A all the way through C as well as main PVT. An absorbed dose or how much dose the tumor received was not reported on those studies. However, it did show that there was a significantly better quality of life compared to serafinib. So in conclusion, how do we navigate the BCLC? Well, a multidisciplinary uh, approach is mandatory uh, with all the players uh, really discussing the care of all these patients. Liver transplantation and resection remain the best curative treatment modalities. In the BCLCA, uh, thermal ablation is also thermally, uh, firmly entrenched for a curative therapy, but those who are not and undergo a treatment migration can undergo chemoembolization or radioembolization. Taste plus PVE or radiation lobectomy are new adjuvant therapies for resection in those with uh, small future liver remnants, and local regional therapy is recommended by the ASLD for bridging therapy for transplantation. In the BCLCB patient population, we know that chemoembolization has been shown in level one evidence uh, over best supportive care, but we at Salem challenges that with radioembolization in this patient population with a longer time to progression. And we can use local regional therapies for downstaging therapy. In the advanced population, we know that there are multiple systemic agents that are out now, but take into consideration in a multidisciplinary approach that we use at Sinai as well in that subselect uh, vascular invasion patient, of combining potentially local regional therapy with um, uh, immuno-oncologic agents to potentially potentiate the effects of the, of the two. And I think, uh, in conclusion, that there are many studies right now that are trying to combine uh, different modalities and across different subspecialties. For instance, neoadjuvant, uh, potentially, let's say, a PD-1 or pdl one inhibitor prior to a resection, or using that in conjunction with local regional therapy, whether it's in the intermediate or the advanced stage. So I think that is the future, and hopefully uh, we can continue to
2: collaborate in a multidisciplinary fashion. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. That was a very nice uh, review and overview of HCC. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce uh, my colleague in town, um, Dr. Gennaro Salvagi, as uh, Head of liver transplantation at the Miami uh, Transplant no Institute. No. And, um, and he's going to be talking about uh, the HCC guideline and adherence as well as going through uh, some of the transplantation criteria.
3: Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. And I'll be talking a bit about the surgical approach, both in terms of resection and transplant. And uh, I have no disclosures. Uh, again, for early stages diseases, we just heard. The recommendations are for surgery. Sometimes local regional therapy may be enough. And then the question whether to move towards surgery versus transplantation. Um, In patients with child, PU, A, and B, if there's no more than two, three lesions, and again, platelet count less than 100,000, male below 12, some studies say male less than nine. One thing that's very important the way I look at it is the location of the tumor. You can have a two-centimeter tumor peripheral, and you can have a two-centimeter tumor in the middle of the liver that's going to require a large resection. That's a problem to decide whether to resect or not. And again, the amount of resection, the volume of healthy liver remnant. Portal vein as we heard, is a strategy, can be utilized. Absence of esophageal varices. One of the things we always ask in patients when we are uncertain is to do an EGD. If the scope shows big, thick esophageal varices, you know that the portal hypertension is advanced elderly population very important uh, uh, you have to have a, f- a favorable frailty index which is becoming one of the hottest topics in both transplant and liver resection and the absence of significant comorbidities you can have an easy transplantable or an easy resectable pa- patient however just the other day we had a person with an injection fraction of 36 percent two stents in the heart in kidney failure on dialysis well that guy is not going to get a resection he's going to get regional therapy Again, locoregional therapy is less invasive. You have a possibility of repeat or combined procedure, and it can be either a final destination therapy versus a bridge to surgical resection or transplant in our cases. Surgery versus transplantation. Where you see advantages in surgery is that it's kind of less invasive than the transplant. There is no need for immunosuppression. You can, in some instances, repeat resection more than once, and does not exclude transplant at a later time. What are the disadvantages? There is a slightly higher rate of recurrence as compared to transplantation. It does not eliminate the cirrhosis, which means that new tumors can arise de novo in other parts of the damaged liver. And it can also lead to liver decompensation and urgent need for transplant or death if you take too much liver and the patient tips over. Or even just an episode of infection or a leak after the resection can trigger the patient to go into liver failure. What are the advantages of transplant? That is the lowest rate of recurrence of all the modalities that we've talked about. Replaces the liver with a new working organ, so it improves all the symptomatology of the patient, makes all liver complications uh, disappear, such as encephalopathy, ascites, and GI bleeding. The disadvantages I should have put their cost, obviously. Second is the need for immunosuppression, at this moment, lifelong. Second is a bigger surgery, bigger risks, and long term complications such as renal failure cancer risk, and so forth. For advanced stage disease, unfortunately, transplant does not become an option. Therefore, systemic therapy combined with some forms of local regional therapy is more advisable. There is sometimes a small but possible window of opportunity for resection and transplant. And so some patients that have originally been discounted for transplant can be well treated with local regional and systemic therapy and become a transplant candidate at a later time. These are small cases, but it's possible. If we look at the statistics, and this is from last year's OPTN report, this is kind of our Bible every year, of the 8,000 liver transplants that were done, 1,300 were done for malignant neoplasms, the majority of which, over 99%, were HCC. So about 16% of the cases we do every year. But if you notice the brown curve that dips down in the last few years, that's the curve of hepatitis C, because, again, we have cured, so to speak, hepatitis C. And HCC has been slowly rising. That's the burgundy line that's been going up from less than 5% to about 16%. The survival of patients who receive a liver transplant, whether they have hepatocellular carcinoma or not, is virtually identical. So having tumor or waiting for a transplant with a tumor does not give you higher risk of death once you receive the transplant. The proposed criteria, the ones that we currently use, is still Milan criteria, which is one tumor between three and five, or up to three tumors each of them, more than one and less than three centimeters. Multiple other criteria have been proposed, and there's vast literature to support their viewpoint. However, as it is currently, the Milan criteria are the only ones that are used by UNOS, which is the organism that runs transplant. Every other patient in the other categories needs to be adequately downstaged to Milan criteria in order to qualify for transplant. The exception policy, uh, I'm talking here about adults, kids. First of all, that is not many with HCC, but if they do, they go straight to status one to privilege them. Uh, the tumor has to be within Milan criteria. Of course, no CT scan of the uh, chest could be positive, otherwise you have extra hepatic disease. Or if you see adrenal or bone metastasis, not a candidate for transplant no vascular invasion, we're talking mostly portal vein and hepatic veins, uh, not a resection candidate, and there goes the decision, first of all, if you can resect or not, and the alpha-fetoprotein less than 1,000 a, a and less than 500 if it was more than 1,000. We have to submit all this data every three months because we're observing the biological behavior of the tumor over time. So what my colleague told you just changed in May The letter up to 34 points does not exist anymore. The new exception score is called MMAT-3. I'll walk you through it. So first of all, the patient has to wait six months before he gets any extra points. Until then, remains with their biological MELD score. The MMAT is the median MELD at time of transplant in the past year, in the radius, either the 250 nautical miles or the donor service area. We're still in the donor service area, but we're going to move to the 250 nautical miles. For us in Miami, it doesn't make a difference because the donor service area is the same as 250 miles because we're in the end of the peninsula of the United States. Mm -hmm. The score is updated every 180 days using the previous 365 days cohort. So as it stands right now in uh, Florida, are MMAT's 28 points. Right. So the patient gets 28 minus 3 gets 25 points. For New York, I think it's 35 and the MMAT minus 3 is 32. So after the 6 months waiting time, the patient will get wherever they are those points. Now, the computer will automatically approve exception if you are within criteria. Otherwise, you have to write an appeal. And the bummer is that you do not get extra point every 3 months step. So in the case of Florida, for instance, once you get those 25 points, you can now get 28 points three months later, 31 points three months later, and so forth. All you get is the change in the MMAT minus three every time the MMAT gets updated, so every six months. That is going to create, obviously, a bottleneck of a ton of patients with the same points, and I think you're observing that in New York as well, and we're seeing that here uh, with a lot of patients with 25 points. So what are the effects of the new policy? There is a bottleneck. There is going to be more need for repeat local regional therapy to bridge the patients for longer times. There is going to be a subselection of patients who actually may end up needing only local regional therapy as destination therapy, small single lesions, very stable cirrhosis. Tumor doesn't come back in two years. We might just say, just watch him. There's going to be a national realignment of all HCC patients towards similar staging at time of transplant. And, of course, it's going to be very important for us on the transplant center to train the coordinators to do submissions. And if a patient that does not qualify automatically, get the case gets submitted with a narrative to the National Liver Review Board. Basically, there is uh, surgeons and hepatologists all over the country. They get submitted cases for approval, and I'm in our uh, region I'm uh, one of the reviewers. And uh, uh, the criteria have become very stiff. So just to give you an idea, there is five reviewers. If you get, you need to get four out of five approvals in your narrative to be approved. If you get two no's, your case is denied, and you have to resubmit. So they've become really, really stringent on the criteria for approval for these extra points. So discussion points. The imaging studies, reading of region, and what we see, we see a lot of patients that come from outside the transplant center, and we strongly advocate for the use of the LARIT template or at least to describe in the imaging studies those things that are important, that is enhancement, washout and capsule. Why? Because when we list the patient and we try to get the appeal, there's check boxes in each of the tumors for these things. If you don't check two boxes, which is either enhancement or washout or capsule, you don't get your case approved. If you get a CAT scan that does not or an MRI that does not describe these things, it has to be reread by our local radiologist, and it spends time. And sometimes you cannot get repeat studies because the insurance doesn't approve new films, and so forth. There are sometimes treated lesions where the original study does not match the above mentioned data. Lesions less than two centimeter. It is my personal belief that unless biopsy proven, they should not be treated. They sh- you should wait until they become more than two centimeter because then you can qualify for future transplant. If you ablate a 1.8-centimeter lesion without biopsy, the patient will never be able to get those points. Imaging studies of Y90-treated lesions done too early. We see the patient that got radi a month ago comes in with a beautiful MRI that looks like I have no idea what I'm reading. And most people, and you guys in the audience know, three months is the minimum, six months is the best result. When there is large tumor burden, Hortal vein or IVC invasion, alpha phytoprotein, about 1,000. There's room to work around the patient, likely not transplant, but we can always see the patient and decide together. And again, sometimes patients are sent to us after failure of multiple treatment. We have private hospitals in the community, uh, not Baptist, where a patient is treated by, I don't know, laparoscopic uh, radiofrequency ablation of a 12-centimeter tumor. And then uh, taste of the same tumor. And then when the tumor recurs peripherally, the other two lesions, oh, now it's time to send the patient for transplant. Oops, a little too late. Adherence to guidelines. Again, surveillance studies. Yes, the papers say ultrasound. If anybody comes to me with an ultrasound, I'm going to ask for a CT or an MRI because to me, with a ultrasound, unless you're in Japan where you have contrast-based ultrasound in patients that are all 50 pounds, uh, and not 350 pounds like the guy did the other day, you cannot see anything with an ultrasound. Um, frequency of imaging studies, uh, guidelines say every six months if you're cirrhotic, three months if there's positive studies, and one month post-procedures. Imaging guidelines, again, we recommend the use of LARED. Management guidelines, the BCLC criteria, are the most commonly used. But truly, there are no really established worldwide accepted guidelines for decisions on resection versus local regional therapy. Multidisciplinary pr- approach is the most important. Again, it's the standard of care in large centers and academic practice, not so much in local community hospitals. Dedicated to more board with all the people there that we were just discussing. And the benefits: faster referral, seamless horizontal movement through different disciplines, unified medical records and imaging repository, data collection, abstraction, statistics, and also for publication and intervention, radiology, oncology, combined clinics. In conclusion, the multidisciplinary approach with fast referral to tumor board is best practice. Avoid late referral to transplant, especially in patients who already have a lot of portal hypertension. Know that the biology of tumor can vary significantly among patients within each patient over time and be ready to modify the plan of action. And last and not least, communication, communication, communication. And I'm gonna hand it over to Richard.
2: Thank you, Gennaro. Uh, the last talk here is gonna be given by Dr. Richard Kim. Uh, he's a medical oncologist at Moffitt Cancer Center. He's gonna be talking on the update of systemic treatment options for advanced HCC. I think you know most of the advancements that we've seen over the last couple of years has really been in systemic therapy. So this is really an opportune talk.
4: Uh, thank you very much uh, for the organization uh, for inviting me to give this talk. So uh, I'm a medical oncologist currently at Moffitt Cancer in Tampa, Florida, not too far away from here. And I was given a task of sort of updating you guys on the systemic treatment options for advanced hepatocellular carcinoma. And as you mentioned, we've come a very long way in terms of management of this uh, kind of patients. Here are my disclosures. So in the treatment of advanced hepatocellular carcinoma, as you guys know, Sorafin was approved back in 2007 when I was actually a fellow at that time. Then, since then, there has been many attempts to beat seraphnid uh, in terms of phase three studies, uh, and Unfortunately, most were all negative until recently when the positive data started to come out since uh, two thousand and seventeen so let 's start with the first line treatment. as we know, the sharp study has been the standard of care for many, many years and I must say, you know, because of the, the, some of the toxicity profile, not everybody was very enthusiastic about giving this drug. However, having said that, this was the first uh, study that was positive in a phase three setting, uh, beating uh, in a patient with advanced hepatocellular carcinoma, there was improvement over survival compared to placebo. And based on that, and this drug was approved back in November 2007 in the treatment of, of advanced unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. Since then, as I mentioned, most of the trials were negative. Until recently, there's a reflex study that was presented a couple of years ago, where this was a, actually a non inferiority study, okay, in patients with advanced pellet carcinoma, who basically, if you look at the inclusion criteria, there's subtle uh, differences between a sharp study. The one was that the patients with, with 50% liver occupation, so a patient with a high burden of disease, or, or a clear bile duct invasion, or portal portal vein invasion, the main portal vein, were excluded. So they excluded a patient with a bad actor, okay? So this is something that you have to distinguish between the SHARP study. And the study was basically randomized between a levandib based on the dose, uh, based on the weight, uh, the, the dose was different, uh, versus Serafnib. And the primary endpoint is over survival. And the secondary endpoint, you, as you look at here, is PFS, time to progression, response rate, and quality of life. And the trial was positive. The, the endpoint of non-inferior was met. If you look at the o- overall survival, uh, the, the, the lenvatinib had, had an OS of 13.6 months, Sorafenib had 12.3 months. And if you look at the Kaplan marker, it's very similar. However, the secondary endpoint was superior arm with lenvatinib. There was a longer PFS, longer time to progression, and the response rate was much higher. Actually, if you go and look at, look at the modified response criteria of response rate, lenvatinib had a close to 40% response rate. So despite having a median over survival very similar and the, the, and the primary endpoints met, the secondary endpoints was much superior in favoring the arm of lenvatinib. So as a clinician, when we see a patient that gets referred to us by surgeons or IR folks with an advanced pellicillac carcinoma, mostly BCLC stage C, you know, how do you decide what to do? And as I mentioned to you, in terms of the OS data, that, that it was very similar. But there are a set of differences that we look at. Number one, as I mentioned to you, so in terms of the inclusion criteria, in the, in the arm of the reflex study, they excluded patients with the high burden of disease and the main port of vein invasion. In terms of the efficacy-wise, uh, it's similar in OS, but there is a higher response rate. So if you have a patient with high tumor burden or symptomatic from disease, maybe the Levandum is, a cho- is your choice. There are subtle differences between hand uh, in terms of the, the toxicity profile, which I didn't have time to go over in detail. But if, if you look at the arm of sorafenib, there was increased hand-foot skin reaction compared to lenvatinib, where there's more increased hypertension, proteinuria, and anorexia. Okay, and where and how the drug is given is a little bit different. You know, the, the data with, with sorafenib is that it's given twice daily, it's BID dosing, versus lenvatinib, which is a once a day dosing. I think other important thing is that because sorafenib has been around so since 2007, there's a lot more data of safety data using sorafenib in Child PUB patients. One of the things that we see as medical colleges is that the patients we see in our clinic are not CHELP, A, 5, or 6. They have 7 P 7, B, uh, 7, or 8 kind of scoring system. But the sorafenib, there's a lot of retrospective and some prospective data that it is probably safe to give sorafenib at a lower dose. On the other hand, Lumbandib, there's some data from a group from, from Japan. But otherwise, there's not much data using this drug in, in CHELP B patients. So that's something to, to think about. Moving on to 2nd lines, randomized study. If this was a patient that I saw maybe uh, two years ago or maybe in a year and a half ago, there, were no nothing, there was no um, uh, standard second-line therapy. But now we have a couple of drugs that's available in second-line. So another uh, tr- uh, drug that was approved uh, in second-line is a drug called regorafenib, which a lot of medical oncologists have uh, experienced using in colorectal cancer. But the resource study was a patient who, uh, in a second-line setting, who, uh, a patient who progressed on the first-line treatment with sorafenib. And they were randomized basically two to one to regorafram versus placebo. And the primary endpoint of the study was over, overall survival, and secondary endpoints, PFS, time to progression, and response rate. Of note, for the inclusion criteria for this study, the patient must have tolerated sorafram at least 400 milligrams once a day. Okay, so if they, if they, they did not tolerate sorafram, those patients were not included in the study. And the trial was positive. In second-line setting against placebo, by giving patient regorafenib, there was an improvement in survival close to about three months. It went from 7.8 to 10.6 months. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, it clearly separates, okay, so in uh, showing the advantage of regorafenib in this setting. Then there's another uh, TKI called cabozantib. Cabozantib is a dirty TKI as well but it blocks a little bit different pathways. It blocks VEGF, but also blocks the MET pathway, you know, pathway, so a little bit the different kind of TKI. This trial, this drug was also studied in second line setting in patients who failed serafinib. Of note that once again, the eligibility criteria was a little bit different. In this study, they allowed up to two lines of therapy, okay? And here, they also allowed patients who were intolerant to serafinib, okay? And the trial was randomized, similar to the resource study, 2 to 1 to capozandine versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was similar on overall survival. And the secondary endpoint is PFS and response rate. And in this study, once again, to point out that about 30% had received at least two previous systemic therapy. This is more like a third-line therapy in, in those patients. And the trial was also positive. It was very similar. If you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, it's very similar to the resource study. There's improvement of survival about two months, shaving the arm of cabozantinib. Uh, placebo is eight months versus 10.2 months in the arm of cabozantinib. And based on this study, the drug was approved in the treatment of, of advanced prostate carcinoma in patients who were previously treated with sorafenib. Once again, if you do a post-doc analysis, just looking at patients who fell one-line therapy, the magnitude of benefit of overall survival is greater. That's as expected. But overall, in, uh, in all patients, there was about two months improvement over survival, and this is how the drug got approved. Now, it's also available for use in our patient as well. Third drug that got approved is a drug called remissuramab. You know, if, if, the know we, we know this drug very well because it's been used in gastric cancer and colon cancer. But this is a, actually, it's not a TKI. It's a monoclonal antibody, that blocks the VEGF R2, so the VEGF receptor 2. So it's not a TKI, okay? And this drug was studied in a similar setting in third line, in, in second line setting, I'm sorry, in patients who failed first line therapy with sorafenib. The, the key difference here is that they only allowed patients with AFP greater than 400. And there were patients who randomized uh, one-to-one to ramicurumab every two weeks versus uh, placebo. And they obviously, the primary endpoint, similar to other studies, were overall survival. So this was a reach two study. So if there was a reach two study, there was probably probably reach one study, and the reach one study is the one that allowed all comers. And that trial was actually negative. There was no difference in overall survival when you compared to placebo. But when they went back did a post hoc analysis, they found out that patients with AFE greater than four hundred actually benefited from amitriptyline. Okay, and and the reach and that's why they did a reach two study. And they would only allow patients with AFP of greater than four hundred. And by doing that study, there was an improvement in overall survival. It was the placebo arm was six point six months, as you could see, and the ramustrium arm was close to eight months. So there the so the p value was very significant. And now this is based on that. This drug was approved in second line setting in patients who have AFP greater than four hundred, which is one of the biomarkers that obviously we check um, every, every couple months. So. When you have a patient that comes in for 2nd life therapy, now how do you consider what drugs to use? Luckily for the patients, we have a lot more options than we did a couple of years ago. So there are three drugs currently approved, rigorafnib, cabozantinib, and remisurumab Once again, there are subtle differences. They all showed over survival data based on a large randomized phase 3 study. So these are all level 1 evidence. However, as I mentioned to you, there are subtle differences. Number one with rigorafnib is that it, you only allowed patients who were able to tolerate serafinib. So, if you have patients were intolerant to serafinib, regorafinib is not the choice. Cabazandam, on the other hand, it allowed patients who were intolerant to serafinib, but technically you could use this as a third line, because about a quarter of the patients in the study got more than two lines of therapy. Remisurumab is only restricted to patients with AFE granite 400, right? Because so, that's only the only subset that showed um, positive overall survival. Okay, so there are some other um, differences that. Other thing that we look at is the toxicity profile. The rygorafenib and cabozandib are TKIs. That's, those are what we call a dirty TKIs, meaning they block many pathways. That's why they have many side effects, obviously. The remasterumab, on the other hand, is a pure VEGFR2 blocker. So only side effect you have is basically anti-angiogenic side effects. Okay. So generally speaking, as a single agent, it's very well tolerated with low rates of reduction and discontinuation, even though there's a little bit high risk of bleeding and ascites okay so something to think about other thing in terms of logistic wise that regorafenib, cabozandib is a pill is oral on the other hand remiserumab is iv infusion which is given every two weeks so sort of differences but obviously we have a lot of choices at least for the patients and depending on each patient's scenario we would make one versus the other choice immunotherapy okay i think i have a couple minutes left but obviously immunotherapy has gone got a lot of attention And we thought this was the next best thing that's coming up. So I just put a question mark there. And the reason for that is I will, you know, um, tell you some of the reasons why now it's sort of becoming a question mark. One of those data that was presented by Anthony uh, about uh, many years ago in 2015 or uh, I think 14 in ASCO was the Checkmate 040 study. As you know, there were many arms in this study. But one of the first arms that was presented was the Nivolumab single agent. Okay, uh, that was a phase two study, single agent uh, uh, study that was first presented. And there were other uh, st- arm in that study, for example, randomization of nivolumab with in first-line study, nivolumab in child PUB patients, and the NIVO plus IPI combination. All the da- data has been so far been presented uh, to some point at, at our congresses. Uh, for this meeting, I don't have time to go through every one of them, but I'll go over some of the main ones at least. So the main one is the, is the, is the single-arm study that got the nivolumab approval by the FDA. And this was based on a pretty large uh, study, single-arm. At the beginning, there was a little bit of concern about liver toxicity. Okay, So they started very slowly. Uh, they had a separate cohort for hep B, hep C, non-infected cohort. The bottom line is there was a response rate was so about 15 to 18%. And the important thing is that these response rates were very, very durable. Okay. Based on that, FDA took a look at it and gave it approval. Once again, but this is based on a single-arm phase 2 study. This drug is not approved anywhere else but the U.S. Okay. But once again, you know, very positive results, very durable response, and this is how the drug got approved. Same thing happened with pembrolizumab. to 224 study is a single-arm study, phase 2 study, Okay, in patients with, with advanced pellicular carcinoma who failed basically one line of therapy, and similar to the map, the response rate is hovering around 15 to 20 percent. And similar to the Checkmate study, these were all very durable. Okay, so these are something that we have not seen in the past when we treat patients with HEC. However, the enthusiasm from this sort of dampened when all of the negative study came out when they started randomizing study. This is the key point is that that's why, you know, we look at a lot of retrospective stuff, post-doc analysis, but I think that's why you need to do a randomized study to really show if it shows benefit or not. So this was a Kino 240 study that Rich Finn presented at ASCO a couple of months ago in Chicago. This was a sort of a, a phase three study, randomizing now in second-line setting, in pembrolizumab versus placebo. Because okay, at that time, you know, there was no standard of care. Right now, these kind of studies will be tough to do. But after 13 months of follow-up, okay, even though there was a trend, the response was very, very similar at 15%. Uh, okay, And there was a slight maybe improvement in PFS. However, these differences did not meet the significance per the statistical plan. So trial was actually negative, even though, once again, there was a trend towards improvement in PFS and maybe trends towards overall survival. So unfortunately, this was a, a negative study. The Checkmate 459 study was just presented at ESMO a week ago. This was a uh, first-line study that randomized the nivolumab versus sotorafnib. When this trial was going on, everybody thought that nivolumab would win. There's no doubt, okay, because it's an IO, it's tolerated very well, and we have a very durable response. okay. And this trial had a dual endpoint. It's a time-to-progression and overall survival. And as you know, there was a press release at, uh, like two months ago saying that it did not achieve statistical significance for its primary endpoint of overall survival. And this was the slide from the ESMO. I did not attend ESMO, so, but these are the numbers. Okay. Once you can see, there's a slight maybe trend towards improvement over survival of, of from, from 14 to 16 months. But if you look, look at the PFS, it uh, was similar. Response rate, just like the other studies, about 15%. And in this study, they did also look at the, sort of the PD-1 expression as a potentially biomarker, and there's maybe a trend towards a higher response rate in patients with um, PD-1 positivity. But once again, even patients who are PD-1 negative were also show response rate as well. So one key, key point of, about this study is that the arm of serafinib had a median over survival of 15 months. Remember the SHARP study that I presented to you uh, that well, was 10 years ago? That in that study, it was about 10 months. So this, so we've made some progress, even despite this trial being negative. So I think I'm over my time. So where do we go from here? Okay, so IOs, unfortunately, in phase two studies, single arm, shows positivity, duration, but all the phase threes were negative. So I think now uh, sort of the areas of research that we're going on is trying to, how do we expand on that? We know certain patients do benefit from immunotherapy. There's no doubt. I have patients who, who's an IO for two, three years, which we do not see with, with TKIs. Okay, But it's not the majority. It's about 15% maybe. Okay, So how do we expand that? And I think these are a couple of ideas that's being thrown out there that's preclinically and clinically being done. One is to possibly enhance tumor-associated antigen exposure by giving radiation, SBRT, local therapy. The second thing is that combining, trying to, to enhance the intrinsic activity, combining the IOs, CTA-4, OX-40, LAC-3. So those are trials I'm going right now. The, another thing is that trying to change the, the microenvironment and that's a hot area right now. And how do you change the microenvironment? By, by adding anti-VEGF, bevacizumab, for example, or adding a TKI, okay, that can change the microenvironment of the tumor so that it could be more responsive to immunotherapy. So one example of this is that the phase one trial of well, lumbandum. I mentioned to you the, re- the reflex study, okay, of lumbandum. They did a study with lumbandum and pembrolizumab, and the rationale behind is that the or other TKIs, that actually it changes the microenvironment to be more responsive to pembrolizumab. Or immunotherapy, and in this small study, once again, 26 patients. You know, the response rate here was about 40 percent. Okay, so much higher than a single agent pembrolizumab, much higher than single agent uh, of of, of Okay, so this example here, and based on that, right now there is a leap study going on right now, which is a phase three study going against. Uh, going against lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab versus lenvatinib alone. And even at Moffitt Cancer Center, we have a trial going out with regorathlin plus nivolumab. So same concept, okay, We're combining the different TKIs and IOs. So once again, this is just a quick example here. Now, there are many, many studies that are going on right now combining local therapy with immunobased therapy, okay, whether it's combining with TASTE. Uh, yeah, doxorubicin-loaded uh, taste or, or, or Y90. So there are many, many studies that are going on right now, trying to, once again, to get a synergy of, uh, of combining local and immune-based therapy. So conclusion, I think over time here, is that I think the first-line adva- treatment, I think sorafenib or lenvatinib are reasonable options. There are subtle differences, as I mentioned to you. In second-line therapy, there are many drugs out there, regorafenib, cabozantinib, reminsteridab. These are all level one evidence, Okay, which is very important. You know, once again, immunotherapy, there's no level one evidence because of the negative phase three study. However, having said that, once again, there are no doubt about subset of patients do benefit from it. Right now, we don't have a biomarker to tell us what it is. I think the future is a combination. I clearly believe is whether it's TKI or IO plus IO or or, or local therapy plus IO, some of those combinations will be the way to go in the future. And I think the last but not least, we need better biomarker development to enhance the patient selection and to minimize unnecessary exposure. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Dr. Kim. I think we have maybe time for one or two questions from the audience before we go to the polling questions.
0: Any questions? I'll, I'll have a question. Uh, Dr. Kim, so you talked about terafinib and then levantinib. How do you make that decision? The patient comes to see you, AND YOU'RE GOING TO START ONE OR THE, one or, one or the OTHER. CAN YOU GO BACK AND TALK A LITTLE BIT, BECAUSE I THOUGHT ON YOUR SLIDE YOU REALLY TALKED A LITTLE BIT ABOUT YOUR DECISION MAYBE BASED ON
4: yeah, so I think, you know, obviously there's no right or wrong, or wrong answer. We have a lot of experience using serafinib, so we are used to using it. In patient with a sort, of a, um, a sort of a child P-U-B patient who don't, who don't have pure child, P-U-A, child P-U-A, I tend to go with serafinib because that's a drug that we've had a lot of experience using. On the other hand, as I mentioned to you, lumbandib does have a higher response rate, so you do see a biochemical response in those patients as well. So I think in a patient with high burden of disease or symptomatic, I, I tend to go with with um, lumbandib as well. So I I think it's a, they're both good drugs, but I think in terms of response rate, definitely clinically, I do see more with uh, lambanda for sure.
0: And any other questions? I have a question for, doc, for the other Dr. Kim. So how many times you see a patient that you evaluate in your, con, in, your off, in your conference? You talked about how you have a multidisciplinary conference, and you may see that the patient doesn't qualify, and you send them to get systemic therapy. How many times do you see that patient come back, and how important is it to continue to follow that patient and have communicate with your, your medical oncologist in terms of possibly coming back and then going into transfer?
1: Yeah, that's, that's an actually an excellent question, Tino. So uh, there are cases where we feel that local regional therapy would provide no benefit for the patient. We've had a patient, for instance, that's actually on the, on the, on the Sinai website as a testimony, not under uh, our service, but... He had a macrovascular invasion invading into the IVC, uh, the portal vein, and everyone said he's gonna have less than three months to live. He actually went on uh, Lemva and Pembro on study and had actually a complete response. Uh, We did some reconstructions for the IVC and portal vein to reestablish flow, um, and we've been following him in conjunction with our medical oncologist, and he's now almost three years out but had a recurrence uh, even though he's still on treatment, uh, let's say for a segment eight, two centimeter lesion, that was definitively HCC. So we treated uh, that lesion with local regional therapy, had an excellent response, uh, and now he's a year out from that. And so I think we're in an area that um, uh, that is very exciting. I think that we need to, to combine the therapies. now. Um, Richard presented the data as is and so the objective response rate in, in certain studies uh, they were non-inferiority studies and also uh, we're talking about you know, 20% and so I think obviously there's room to, to improve uh, and I think where we do that is really in a multidisciplinary fashion and combining uh, systemic therapies and their benefits but patients are going to progress, this is not a true cure and so we need close surveillance and follow-up uh, and uh, supplement with either systemic or vice versa with local regional therapy. Or maybe a patient even gets uh, eligible for resection or transplantation. Who knows? We're in, the, we're in a very uh, new
2: area. Well, I want to thank everybody uh, for attending. I want to thank uh, the excellent speakers that we had this morning. Thank you very much for attending.